Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word, your word that shares with us the knowledge of salvation, your word that teaches us your will. Help us, Lord, to walk according to your will in your wisdom. Lord, grant us wisdom where we don't have it. Lord, help us in our unbelief, our lack of faith. Lord, we we need you. We seek you. We want this all to be yours. For we are yours, sheep of your pasture. Thank you for life and thank you for life everlasting that we have received in your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what does it take to be a Christian? What are the requirements? What are the rules to follow to be a living Christian? What is it that makes you one? Uh, Are there things that we should be doing? Is it really true that bow ties are holier than long ties? Herb Hayes, if you're out there, yes, it is true. Or, or maybe I should wear one of those cutting-edge Hawaiian shirts. I've got a closet full of them. Do, do we have to attend Bible school a certain number of times a week or, or services? Is that what makes us a Christian? What about our lives outside of the church? Uh, should we throw out all the guidelines? Because we are free in Christ? Pulling out that postmodern emergent church card where we like look as much like the world as we can so that we can maybe reach a few from the world, right? Just do whatever the world does because, hey, we're free in Christ and maybe, maybe we'll reach them where they are. Is that what we should do? When we boil it all down, what is necessary? As our culture and and community changes around us, how, when, where, and, and why should we draw lines of what's appropriate for the follower of Jesus Christ? How many fences do we put up to protect our theology? How many people do we disregard as faithful followers of Christ because they just don't fit our comfort zone or our cultural theological mold? These questions that we should wrestle with here in this church today are the same things that the early church had to deal with. Uh, The cultural face of the early church was in an almost constant state of flux, wasn't it? We've seen it here in the book of Acts. There were always new cultures and new influences being brought into the church. We've seen it here as the church began as a, a mixed bag of people, wasn't it? Men, women, young, old, a tax collector, fishermen. There was even an ex-prostitute mixed in there. Then they added Jewish people from regions all over the Roman Empire on the day of Pentecost, didn't they? And now, slowly but surely, uncircumcised Gentiles are being allowed to come into the church. Those who have never tasted the law of God, never followed it. From an Ethiopian eunuch 
who couldn't possibly become a Jew, proselyte, proper follower of the law, to a Roman centurion and his family. Now, now all of these church plants that Paul and Barnabas have gone out and planted in the Gentile world. How far is this going to go? And how are they to reconcile the differences, their preferences, their traditions, everything they're used to with this, this influx of new people, new cultures, new ways of thinking? In today's passage, we're going to see that God and his word. God and his word are the foundation of our decision-making process. And in accord with God and his word, salvation is not based on external issues, but is a matter of the heart, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone which then causes the believer to now live under the law of love. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 1. Why don't we stand up for the reading of God's Word? So Paul and Barnabas get back from that first missionary journey. And chapter 15, verse 1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers." When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, 
who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The reading of God's word. Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. So this, the early church began entirely Jewish. They worshipped with Jewish psalms and, and Jewish hymns and spiritual songs. They ate Jewish foods together. They met in the Jewish temple and they met in Jewish houses and broke bread there together. Many of them were not only Jewish, but some of them were a step further. They were priests and or Pharisees. If we look back at chapter 6 of Acts, chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Sorry, waiting for everybody to get there. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These are, these are the kind of people who were coming into the church. People who were very much used to a set of rules, a certain way of doing things. It was prerequisite to their own personal holiness. Now, before we are too hard on them, let's remember that they spent their whole lives trying to obey the, not, not only the law of God, but they had these additional traditions and laws, the Talmud, that would tell them, don't do this so that then you don't do this so that then you don't do this, and then you won't break the law of God over here. They had all these additional rules surrounding the law of God so that they wouldn't ultimately break the rule of God, and they learned this from a very young age. This way of life was driven into them. Before Jesus fulfilled the law, just a few years earlier than this, the law was necessary. They did have to do these things. And so they come to Antioch. Verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, But some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 5, they reiterated again, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These guys come in and they, they stir the pot, saying that one must be saved by obedience to the law and faith. Faith plus something else. It fits in their comfort zone. It's what they grew up with. It's what they were used to. In their eyes, the Gentiles were being brought into the Jewish faith. Yes, the Messiah has come, but he's a Jewish Messiah of God's chosen people. According to the law and prophets, a fulfillment of the promises that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's hard to let go of what we've been raised on or things as they were, isn't it? It's hard to let go and watch things change that had once been part of our lives. As we nostalgically point out the place on Signal Hill in Long Beach, California, this lush field 
where you proposed to your wife 20 years ago. And you realize that they've now built houses there. And so wherever you proposed is probably somebody's toilet. We don't want things to change. I don't want to look there and see houses. I want to see the beautiful field where I proposed, right? More seriously, in in church, the music we sing, the programs we enjoy, the, the version of Scripture that we memorized passages in. Did you know that to this day there are still churches that are King James-only churches? Any other version of the Word of God is anathema. These things become almost holy, if not holy, to us. It can't be church unless we fill in the blank, wear a coat and tie, whatever it might be you were raised on. We aren't Christians unless we practice our faith in a a certain fashion. And if we don't, we're doing something wrong. We must be circumcised and obey the law along with our faith. It's what we've always done. So after some debate with Paul and Barnabas, the issue is carried on to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Verses 4 through 6, it says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles, and the elders. And they declared all God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Here we have the second council of Jerusalem. All the apostles, all the elders gathered together to discuss an issue that affects the church as a whole. The first was in chapter 11, over Cornelius, the centurion, and his family coming to Christ, deciding if Gentiles can really be saved. This second council debates and decides that on the basis of what God has said and what God has done, that God has made it clear that salvation is by faith in Christ alone not by works of the law of Moses, which should cause us to live by the law of love. Because what God says and does far outweighs any opinion of our own. We may have our comfort zone and the things that we are used to, but what has God done? As this issue is brought into the Second Council of Jerusalem, What has God done? Verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Here's what God's done. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter reminds them all that God, God bore witness to the Gentiles. God gave his spirit. God made no distinction. God cleansed their hearts, and God made the choice to do this. 
if we look back at chapter 10, Cornelius was a God-fearer, but he was by no means Jewish. He was an uncircumcised Gentile who had never walked according to the law of the nation of Israel. But God gave Peter that vision of the sheet coming down with all those unclean foods on it and said, Peter, eat. Peter complained and said, no, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, don't call anything unclean that I have declared clean. God did this to show Peter that God shows no partiality. Chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God sent his spirit upon the Gentiles at that time. If you look a little further down in chapter 10, verses 44 and 45, God gave his spirit. That's something only God can do. It wasn't something that Peter did. It wasn't something the church did. It was God at work. This is what God had done. So they concluded at the end of that first Jerusalem council, chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, then to Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That was the conclusion they came down to at the end of that first Jerusalem council, looking at what God had done. Based upon what God had done, Gentiles were now a part of the church by faith, apart from the works of the law. And now, what has God said? Starting at verse 13 of our passage today. After they finished speaking... James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them and a people for his name. And with this, with what God has done, the words of the prophets agree. God's own word agrees, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I, this is God speaking, will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is God's prophetic word from Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. It has in there some allusions to several other texts. There's several other texts that talk about God bringing in a remnant from the Gentiles. God's own word from long before says that he will be bringing Gentiles into his body. His covenant with Abraham. God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So we see that what God has said and what God has done brings them to the conclusion that whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, the unilateral source of salvation for all believers, no matter what nation, tribe, or tongue we come from, is grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Starting at verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We're all in the same boat. Verse 9, God made no distinctions. Verse 11, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Salvation is a heart issue. And hearts are cross-cultural. All of our hearts are deceitful. All of our hearts need salvation. All of our hearts have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Salvation is a heart issue, not a matter of external laws. So no more requirements and rules should be laid upon anyone other than faith in Jesus Christ. That's what our passage says here today, right? Saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Verse 19. What did James say? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. They shouldn't have that yoke of the law put upon their shoulders. God meets us where we are. Whatever our current sinful condition might be, whatever sin you might have been walking in even this morning, God knows your name. God knows who you are and what you have done. And he died for you. He died for all of us while we were yet his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, God meets us right where we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. The salvation that Jesus provides us is entirely apart from the law, any law of works. It is entirely through faith in Christ alone. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made real, tangible, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. There's those words again, isn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by works. Come on. To be received by faith, 
right? To be received by faith. Salvation is simple. Acknowledge your sinful condition before a holy and righteous God. Repenting of your sins. Accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in your place. Trusting in him for the forgiveness of those sins that are such a burden. And in his resurrection, you then have the hope and the promise of life eternal. Now, could, could we discuss our entire lives, the nuances and the details of, of God, what God teaches us in his word? Rich and deep theology, all the varied things that he tells us about himself, our nature, the world around us, sin, on and on. Yeah, we could, couldn't we? There's lots in this book to learn about God. It is thick and rich, and I don't care how many times I've read it, there's still something that strikes my heart every time I pick it up and read it. Is it good to grow in maturity in our walk in Christ, in wisdom, in knowledge, and understanding? Yes. Yes, it is. Scripture even reprimands those who don't do these things. Hebrews chapter 5. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We are called to grow in our faith, aren't we? But salvation in Jesus Christ is simple. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. No hoops to jump through. No longer beholden to 613 Levitical laws of the Old Testament, the requirements that are found in the law of Moses. No extra rules to be sure that the real rules remain unbroken. No faith plus. No faith plus works. No faith plus tradition. No faith plus some extra biblical work. No list of theological prerequisites except a simple understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Think about the thief on the cross. How deep was his theology? But he was in paradise. If we want to boil all this, if we want to boil down inclusion into the church of God to its foundational requirements, it's this. Faith. Trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins and as the singular source of our salvation. Not by works or depth of knowledge or great theological understanding that no man should boast. I'm sorry to be repetitious on this, but it's such an important idea, this idea of what makes a Christian, what is salvation? It's so important that they spent all this time gathering the elders and and the apostles together to debate and discuss this. It's so important that this comes with a word of warning, doesn't it? Did you see that in verse 10? Peter's talking to them and he says, Now, therefore, seeing what God has done, 
Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. This is serious that we understand just what makes a Christian. As Paul says in Galatians, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let us not be found putting God to the test. People shouldn't have to try to meet our standard, our cultural morality, in order to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. And we must not allow our cultural morality to become a stumbling block, to become a barrier to new faith. It is so important not to lay on extra rules and regulations that James says in in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. No extra rules, no extra regulations. But here's what you have to do. Abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Wait, wait a minute. I I thought there were no extra rules. I thought there were no more regulations. That's they decide. It's by faith, by through grace in, in Jesus Christ, right? What is James saying here? I thought they were no longer under the law, and now he says that there are things that they are to do or not to do. Abstaining from sexual immorality, I kind of get that one. That just falls right in line with God's own morality that we should mature into. But, But idols aren't anything. Why should we worry about what's polluted by idols? They aren't real. They're just pieces of wood and metal, right? All foods have been declared clean. Why, why can't a good German enjoy a good blood sausage, right? What James has to say is not so much about the what, but the why. Look at verse 21 again. Do these things for, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. There are people everywhere who know the law of Moses and the moral compass of God, especially as it had been given to the Jews, as there are Jews scattered throughout every nation in every city. And God's word is proclaimed to them week after week after week. And while Jesus meets us where we are, As Christians, we should begin to live our Christian life under the law of Christ, under that law of love. As a a Christian, a Christian should be growing in maturity in their love for Christ. And as we grow in maturity in our love for Christ, we begin to grow in maturity in our love for others. And that should cause within us to, to bear a careful, loving witness to the faith of others, to the hearts of others. It should begin to grow within us an understanding of their sensitivities. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. If they had just walked out and and continued about their Gentile cultural ways, they would have completely lost witness to any of these Jews who had the the law of God and the words of Moses read to them week after week after week. And so James just calls them to start living under the law of love. As those saved by grace, we should be willing and desirous to pursue a love for God and for others. One that recognizes God's morality and strives to live by it so that we can fulfill our Acts chapter 1 verse 8 call effectively. We're not here to moralize the world or to earn our righteousness through doing or being certain things, becoming some kind of modern version of the law. But we won't be effective witnesses of the gospel if the places we go and the activities we participate in, and yes, even sometimes the things that we wear, if they don't reflect what we are trying to tell people about Jesus Christ. A Christian woman who wears a low-cut dress will get a man's attention, but it won't be for the sake of Christ. A man who gets high on drugs in order to reach people who get high on drugs, it's going to be putting a stumbling block in his witness, isn't he? As Christians saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are not beholden to a law of works. And we should not hold any traditions or preferences above what God has said and done as if they were somehow going to save us or, or make our worship holy or something like that. But we are now under the law of Christ. A law that causes us to grow in our love for Christ and for others and to bear witness through our lives to grow in maturity in Christ, to question who we are and what we do, knowing that it all bears witness. It all bears witness to that gospel that we are called to share. Leaning upon the word of God as our guide. Here at Alden Union Church, let's share the gospel. Pure, clean, and simple. No extra laws. No rules. Living out law of love, putting other people's hearts before our own desires, considering what the Lord may want to change in us in order to refine us as tools of his gospel message, that we would be empowered by the Spirit and bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. For your word is simple and complex. Your word is accessible 
and so rich and deep, I don't know if we'll reach the end of it in this lifetime. Father God, we praise you for your love for us shown in Jesus Christ that reached us while we were still sinners. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength, give us the wisdom, give us the discernment to reach those who are called by your name, who aren't there yet, but Lord, that through us you'd use us as your tools for the gospel message that they too would know life eternal just as we do. Lord God, would you be praised and glorified here in this place and everywhere your people go, everywhere this church body disperses to. Lord, would you be high and lifted up through everything we say and everything we do in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.